Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, the Other People Podcast is offered freely. Your support makes a difference. If you want to throw a few bucks in the hat, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Every single episode of this show is available for free, offered to the world freely. Support the show at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Thank you. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. I just Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jeez, dude, what a struggle, you know? It's incredible. It's like your head explodes. It's really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Hello, how's it going? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I am Brad Listy, and this is my program. It's good to have you with me. J. Ryan Stradle is back once again for a second time. He has a new novel out called The Lager Queen of Minnesota. It is available from Pam Dorman Books. That's an imprint of uh, Viking, I believe. And uh, Jay Ryan is a buddy of mine. He lives here in L.A. His debut novel, uh, Kitchens of the Great Midwest, was a big bestseller. One of those great debut stories. And The Lager Queen of Minnesota has been getting rave reviews. So... Quite an auspicious beginning to his publication career. He was uh, nice enough to come over and talk with me, and that is coming up in just a moment. But uh, before we get there, I do want to read some mail. I keep getting mail about the Brad Easton Ellis episode, episode 587, so I'm going to share some of it with you. These, uh, I'm going to read you two letters back-to-back. Actually, three, but they're from two, two uh, people total. And they both share similar sentiments, which uh, strikes me as interesting. So the first one comes uh, from a listener named Tim, and he says, Hey Brad, as I listened to episode 589 with Steve Almond, I couldn't help but make the comparison to Brett Easton Ellis in episode 587. Both place high importance on the role of art in society, yet have wildly different views on how an artist should exist within that society. Whereas Almond thinks the artist should be careful to put things of value into the ether, to have a positive impact, Easton Ellis thinks that the artist should only be true to the, to himself, with little regard, with little to no regard, as to how it impacts the larger society. I may be off base, but I think this relates to their general views regarding 
engaging in politics and the issues of the day. It seems that Easton Ellis is kind of like, I don't give a shit. I'm an artist. But Steve Allman counters with, I give a shit because I'm an artist. It's an interesting contrast of two writers who place high importance on art and the role it plays, but certainly don't agree on its application to society. Have a good one. Tim. So that's one email. And then uh, I got another one from a listener named Dave. He says, good morning, Brad. Okay, so goddamn. I'm only five minutes into the interview with Brady Stanellis, and yes, I will listen to the entire interview because he is interesting, but ugh. Right out of the gates, he goes on and on and on. We are all an authority on something, sure, yet he comes off as an expert on everything he says, and more to the point, is disingenuous. And that's the tiresome part. Very. Also, telling people they're overreacting? Fuck that. He's an intelligent person, it seems, but he chooses to simplify, or oversimplify, shall we say, other people's feelings and... I don't know. Most everything is spoken like fact and is too dismissive of other facts and or opinions. Less than zero humility and chill. Have you ever heard an interview with David Lee Roth? He was recently on WTF. Ellis is like the flip side of the David Lee Roth coin. Yeah, that's it. I don't say that in a dry academic way, he just said. It would be much more bearable if he said mean instead of say, because fuck you, dude. My opinion. I don't know. This email is sort of, <laughs> it's kind of, a, <clears throat> kind of a rant, as you can tell. Uh, Dave continues, I hate guys who are so skilled with words and meaning then are seemingly dismissive of words and meaning when convenient, and they apply that to others too. We'll see if I listen to the whole podcast. Love your podcast. Not this one. It is interesting, though. He's a political bullshit, utter bullshit, fuck em, podcast off. Signed, Dave. And then, uh, like a few minutes later, he emailed me again, and he said, Hello again, Brad. Oh, shit. Now I'm listening to Steve Allman episode, and it's great. A brilliant antidote to Brett. So thank you to uh, Dave and Tim and to everyone who has taken the time to listen, I don't know, recently in general, but in particular to the Brett Easton Ellis episode because it generated uh, so many letters, and I've tried to get to as many as I can here in the uh, preamble. Um, I, I pick these two because they both basically say the same thing, which is interesting, and I don't disagree in a general way that Almond and Brett Easton Ellis are coming at life and politics and art from two different vectors. And it occurred to me since I uh, recorded those interviews close to, uh, close together, you know, they happened in sequence relatively close to one another, that they are uh, potentially great sparring partners. Like I kind of want to see a debate between them on stage because I feel like uh, both can really talk. They're great talkers. They would have a lot to discuss. They have opinions. I think it would be pyrotechnic. Pyrotechnical? So, uh, not much more to say, but I wanted to share those letters because I think they uh, highlight something interesting. Otherwise, uh, what's going on? I saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the new Tarantino movie. 
it felt good to be in a theater. I haven't been to a theater in way too long. I don't get to go to the movies uh, as much as I would like. And I liked the movie. I didn't love it. Who knows why? I felt like it was super hyped. I was ready for it to be this like raving masterpiece, but um, you know, I don't want to spoil it. I'm not going to say anything too much more. Just personally, I enjoyed it. It was fine. I, you know, but it wasn't like, oh my god. And I, I think there are uh, other Tarantino movies that I prefer. I think I've, I've seen most all of them. I haven't seen all of them. I don't think I saw that. I haven't been able to get through the Hateful Eight, and uh, like one or two others. But I, I'm an, I like Inglorious Bastards. I think that's my favorite one. And the better alternate history. Uh, I think it's a, I think it's a superior alternate history to uh, once upon a time, just from, you know, my perspective. So otherwise, uh, just working and podcasting and trying to, uh, be a, a family man here in, uh, Southern California. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So anyway, let's get to J. Ryan Stradel. His new novel is called The Lager Queen of Minnesota. The Lager Queen of Minnesota. And it is available now from Pam Dorman Books. Uh, Such a good time talking with him and very happy for my buddy J. Ryan Stradel. Here he is. Are you ready? Should we do this? Okay. I didn't even think initially that I would send my first book, it, its manuscript, to um, like big agents or big publishers. I didn't even consider it as an option. It's Kitchens seemed, of the Great Midwest. Yeah, yeah. You thought it wasn't ready for prime time, or you didn't? It wasn't that I didn't think it was ready for prime time. It was like I didn't even consider it. It was like literary success is something that happens to other people. Like I, I looked at the world and I went, I don't, I don't see how I can get from here to there and with what I know and the people, you know, um, yeah, I mean, I, at one point I had four years between publishing short stories. I mean, I was assiduously writing short stories between like 2003 and 2013, which is when I started writing kitchens and kind of tapered away from writing short stories. And during that time, I met a lot of other authors who were having, you know, what I consider to be literary success by having their books come out on small presses and doing small tours and 
reading and reading series in the cities they lived in. And I thought that looks great. You know, that's, that's what I want. That seems like, that seems feasible for me. I can reach that. But then I'd go to Romans or Skylight and I'd see some touring author, you know, someone like George Saunders. And I go, I don't, I don't know how you get there from, from where I'm at. No idea. So it feels very surreal to me. Uh, there are times I wake up and I kind of pinch myself and I go, how, how did I get in this situation? Well, how did you, 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 so you write kitchens in the great Midwest and at some point you decide you want representation. Yeah. And at some point things do turn and you do go, you were a huge help. I know. Yeah. I don't want to, I made J Ryan Stradle. <laughs> Seriously. Um, and I don't want to, uh, put too much pressure on, on, on you, uh, vis-a-vis your listeners now, you know, writing, you asking for help getting agents, but you were, a huge help in that regard. And you told me something I've told a million people ever since, which is follow the enthusiasm, right? Yeah. I've said that on this show before. And that is the only, I think that's like really the only like full throated, if if that's the way to put it. Yeah. Like piece of advice that I feel confident about giving. Yeah. And there's a lot of literary advice out there. Yeah. And and it, it applies to agents or publishers. Right. Right. And when it applies to writers, it's so provisional. Like if you're the sort of writer that needs to outline, outline. If you don't need to outline, don't outline. You know, um, Garth Greenwell had a Twitter um, kind of a I don't know what you'd call it, like a, a thread um, last week where he uh, put out a lot of uh, writing advice that sort of seemed to illustrate this. That if it's you know if, you know whatever works for you is what works. The writing advice that that you take is the is the advice you need in a sense or, or or the advice that you apply successfully is what you needed because there's a million ways to get around to writing a novel but in terms of getting it to publishers especially the publisher that i, I currently have and have had uh which I is, needed an agent which is uh, which is viking uh pamela dorman books at viking i've had the uh, same editor for each book and i'll have her again for my third book and I couldn't have gotten to her without Ryan Harbage, who you told me about. Um, I mean, he also represented a friend of mine, Rob Roberge, uh, still represents Rob. And um, I had a way of getting to him. I could contact him. And he took a long time to get back to me. I mean, he's very busy. He has a lot of clients. He only has one other person working with him. But in the meantime, I went on Publishers Marketplace you know, registered for it, paid the money, uh, looked up agents that were making recent sales, agents that were looking for new clients. I Google searched agents looking for clients. Saw a lot of the junior agents or younger agents at the larger agencies, sent them the manuscript, not expecting a thing. 10 years before I'd written a manuscript, I'd written a novel like in the mid two thousands, I sent it to agents. I didn't even get a response. I mean, a few agents might've emailed back to say, Oh, we received it, but that was the extent of it. No one, no one asked for a full. No one uh, said, "Great work," but it's not for me. Nothing, right? And so I just thought, "Oh, that's the default. That's what I should expect." I had forgotten to take into consideration that I had spent the intervening ten years writing and reading more than I ever had in my life before, or probably since, and became a better writer just through reading a shit ton of books. And writing all the time, short stories. So by the time I got around to writing kitchens, 
And sure, I was a better writer, but I still held the notions of an inferior writer. I still held the notions of a writer that had been disappointed and had been like, turned away at the gate earlier in his life. And I didn't expect anything and didn't even really consider it as an option. I thought, oh, okay, well, I'll try to get an agent. And if this agent can, you know, get me a deal at an indie press, that'll be great. And I think that was one of the first things I asked Ryan was like, oh yeah, let's talk about, you know, he showed me the list of editors and publishers he was going to send it to. And I thought, wait a second, where are the indie presses on this list? You know, because I thought none of these people are going to say yes. They're not even going to respond to you, Ryan. You know, like, let's just skip this part that isn't going to happen and get to the part <laughs> like, you know, you know, that, that I know because I also knew people that worked at indie presses. I love indie presses. A lot of my best friends in L.A. who are novelists started or are still publishing on indie presses. And I love them. You know, to me, it seemed like that's like that's what I set out to do. And that's where like the cool bands have oh, their records. Yeah, you know, yeah. there's some there's some cachet in on the street with the indie press. Right, it's so accessible and often like on a sentence level, the writing is so interesting and and they're doing more interesting things with stru uh, structure and plot and you know they're 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 fun, intelligent, engaging reads. And Ryan said, "Well, yeah, we can get to that if it comes to it, but let's." let's send to these publishers and these editors at these publishers. And he explained to me, this was before I even signed with him. He explained to me, this is why we're sending this manuscript to these publishers. He was extremely transparent about that. But I mean, meaning what he described like, this is who they are. This is who this editor is. This yes. is who this editor has published. Yes. This is why I think it's a potential fit. Yes. All that stuff. Yes. And the other thing I would say too, just for people listening is that, you know, an agent's not going to make much money, if any money, on an indie press. So they have, a, right. they have a business interest in trying to get a bigger house yeah. to put down, in a, you know, some money on it. But um, just as a business strategy, uh, typically an agent that's submitting to the houses in New York is going to start with an A-list. Mm -hmm. you, you might as well swing for the fences. These are the right. people we'd love to be with. Right. And then if that doesn't work, you hopefully get like a second round of submission. Yeah. If that doesn't work, sometimes an agent will bail mm -hmm. and say, I think you should write another book, which is like, that's, <laughs> yeah. some, that's quite, yeah. it's quite a thing to tell somebody who just spent like four years pushing a rock up a hill. Yeah. But it is, it often happens, which just to often draw a line under it, um, you know, adds credence to this notion that when you're looking for an agent or you're looking for a publisher, follow the enthusiasm because mm -hmm. an agent who is truly enthusiastic about a writer and his or her work is most likely to endure rejections and be willing to do multiple rounds of submission if they have that enthusiasm and that belief. And if they do not, and they only see it as uh, like a more transactional relationship, well, I'll see if I can sell it. Right. And if I can't, you know, in short order, then I'm going to be on to the next. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that happens sometimes when that love isn't there. That's why enthusiasm is so important or one of the reasons why. Yeah. And it's one of the reasons I chose my editor as well was because of her enthusiasm. And I've been so happy working with Pam Dorman. Uh, she's been such a good fit for my writing with uh, Logger Queen. It was harder. I mean, I didn't have a finished manuscript that had been <laughs> copy edited by three different people, which Kitchens had been by the time I got to Pam's desk. Uh, I dragged her through my process a lot more. Like she saw like a er, turgid early draft that was over 570 pages long and 18 chapters, nine point of view characters. I think I remember talking, and maybe the last time you were on the show or one of the times we hung out, 
I think it was one of the times we hung out. It was around that time. Yeah. And you're like, you were like 600 pages. Yeah. I think it's going to need work. Oh, it needed a lot of work. You know, um, but now you and Pam, now she's seen, now she really knows you, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We've been through the desert and back together. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. And uh, can you talk about, I guess, like, because Kitchens, just so people know, did extraordinarily well for a debut. In yeah, the literary so. fiction space, yeah. sold uh, in the six, six figures numbers of copies. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. so that's not normal. No, most no. books sell like five hundred copies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My agent says ninety percent of all books sell under five thousand copies. Yeah, and I think a lot of them sell like oh, you know you read different things. On it the also made the New York Times bestseller list, which for fiction, ninety five percent of the people on the bestseller list have been it on have been on it already. So it's how a did, how very did hard thing to get onto. And I had no idea about any of that. How did you get on it? What do you think happened? Um, they really pushed the book. The publisher, Viking, got behind Kitchens in a really unusual way. At the time, I don't think they do this anymore, but there was an internal um, program called Title Wave. And the previous Tidal Wave books before mine had been Girl on a Train and Station Eleven, where as a company, Viking kind of circled wagons. And I I don't know if this was just a Viking thing or a Penguin Random House thing, actually. Um, I mean, my sales rep told me about it. But what it meant was internally, this book would get a lot of juice. They would put a lot of money behind it. They would make sure it got into a lot of places. They would pay to have it in airports because that's a, that's a thing, you know, um, they would, um, ads, they did a full page ad in New Yorker. They did ads in newspapers. I mean, it really got, got publicized Tidal wave. Yeah. And I don't think they do that program anymore. Why not? That sounds like a good idea. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's, it's. It's sort of like playing favorites, though. I mean, you're you're kind of marshalling a lot of resources towards one title when you know you could be spreading the wealth a bit more. I guess. Well, I mean, it doesn't I have to know. be it doesn't have to be one title, but it is a business. And if yeah. you feel like there are certain books that you have on your list that have, if, if in your estimation, have the best possible chance mm-hmm. of really connecting, I don't see what's wrong with. And the and the book was really uh, beloved internally at at Penguin and um. I really felt that. I really felt that they would give it a shot, which is the most you can ask for as a writer. When you put the book out on them, I mean, we might've talked about this in our last uh, conversation. So there may be some overlap, but I think it's worth asking again, when you took the book to market or Ryan took the book to market, mm-hmm. um, you submitted to that first like top tier list of editors, Pamela Dorman, I'm assuming was there in that yeah. grouping. Yes. You had multiple offers. Yes. Book went to auction. No, uh, uh, Pamela preempted. preempted it. Okay. But you decided to go with her based on the conversation I'm assuming you had with her and yes. the, like the connection you forged and the sense of, Oh, she really gets my book. Yeah. A conversation with her in the parking lot of original productions in Burbank while I was working on storage wars, Texas during my lunch break. Really? Yeah. She came out here? No, no, no. I was talking to her on the phone. Oh. I went out to the parking lot. She's like, month. I'm going to track you down at your place of business. That's a good sign. When, yeah. When your yeah, editor... That's enthusiasm. <laughs> that's my new measure for enthusiasm. I want my editor Find to me where st- I work. stalk me. Yeah. I want you, I want you in a tree. I want, I want you to send me Harry's berries. <laughs> yeah, right. I want you, uh, 
want to see you outside my front door. But, <laughs> um, so, okay. So you feel this, um, personal level of connection and this is the right way to go. And then you feel this, uh, organizational, like <coughs> rallying around the book. That is a good sign. Yeah. Um, they spend a lot of money on promotion. Mm -hmm. I'm imagining too, that when a big publisher like that, with all of its human resources, um, when they do something like this, it had to have involved their sales reps mm -hmm. and the lines of communication with bookstores. So then bookstores yes. were probably aware of it in a way yeah. that they might not be aware of the average, like mid list title or whatever. Yeah. The sales reps, I don't know how many of your listeners know the, the side of the industry, but what the sales reps do, or one of the things they do is go to the bookstores, um, like one night a quarter, like about every two or three months and pitch their favorite books from their list to these bookstores. And usually they'll gather at one bookstore or, um, or, or another place where a number of booksellers will be gathered and they kind of pitch a bunch of booksellers or pitch book clubs that meet at a bookstore as well. I've, I've seen different versions of this over the years where, oh yeah, here's an event like, like there'll be like a independent bookstore association meeting, um, which are regional and there the sales reps will pitch books to book booksellers at like kind of symposiums or conferences kind of things. And then they'll go to bookstores and they'll pitch them to book clubs and, you know, other, um, you know, maybe like, um, you know, uh, regional indie bookstores, I guess. But that was a big part of it. It was like, I know my sales reps. I love them. You know, they're, they were really behind my first book. They, they were early adapters. Uh, they got it to booksellers. Booksellers were tweeting about my book in January and the book came out in July. That's a good sign. Yeah. And also, by the way, most writers don't know their sales reps. Right. I don't think. Right. Did you, did you get introduced? Yeah. So it was like, okay. So they really put organizational muscle behind. Yeah. Yeah, I still, I'll casually hang out with my sales rep. That's a good thing, too. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll go to a bar and watch baseball together. Really? Yeah. Great. Yeah, and he'll give me galleys he thinks I would like. You know, it's like we, you know, we have a friendship. And he also kind of goes the extra mile for me in terms of um, promoting my work within our region. Like, he had a, a party for me at a brewery in Monrovia where the brewer made a beer based on a beer in my book. No shit. Yeah. Great. And they invited a bunch of local librarians and booksellers to this party where I talked about the book. They talked about the book. Everyone got a copy. People got copies signed. And, and so this kind of thing happens to help move books up a stack because you told me earlier today, you get three or four books a day. Booksellers, librarians get several times that. They need to be told what to prioritize. They see this mass of books. Some of these names they know, most they don't. So if they have a sales rep coming saying, move this book up the stack, read this book, this kind of reader is going to like this kind of book. They'll know what to do with it. They need this information. So, okay. So you have this great success with Kitchens of the Great Midwest, which, by the way, great title. Oh, thanks. It, really, though. And I think it has something to do with why it succeeded. Um, you know, you don't want to put too much emphasis on one particular little tiny thing, but it matters to people. Yeah. Like, it says something... Uh, I feel like it says something about what's in the book, obviously. It also speaks to a market that is large, people like cooking and food. And mm -hmm. and then it also places the book regionally. Yeah. And somehow I think communicates that this is a book 
that's for everyone and is not like a book for uh, like a specific artsy like niche like uh you know i, I live in the bowery and, like <laughs> write poetry and blood you know what i'm saying right 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 like there's an accessibility maybe there sure um, sure there's kind of an everyman uh aspect to it as well i think yeah and so that yeah, was important to me i mean i wanted people to get the notion that this book is you know middle class working class book too you know this is not a that this is not a book about rich people problems right you know there's something about that title that to me connoted oh this is a book about everyday people and their problems and it characterizes the midwest as great yeah. which i think you know there's yeah. there's the common trope that the coastal um the coastal elites look down their nose at the flyover states or whatever sure. you know all that stuff yeah and as two midwestern boys yeah I don't, I don't know i don't know if i grew up with any chip on my shoulder about that i was so clueless i, I didn't just... grow up with a chip on my shoulder about it either i i thought it, where i grew up was great i did see and i have perceived my whole life as i'm sure you have how entertainment created about people in the midwest by people on the coast tends to to be kind oversimplify us right. oversimplify the sort of people we grew up with and you certainly see that in a lot of contemporary journalism, some of the lazier journalism t attempting to, you know, you know, I talk about uh, like Trump voters in the Midwest or something and trying to cast people with a broad brush by going up to the craziest person in the local diner and saying like, <laughs> well, this is what Indiana's like, you know. Um, by the way, I grew up in Indiana. Yeah. That is what Indiana's like. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can say that as someone from Indiana. Yeah. Uh, like, like, uh, I like to think that, well, I, I know that um, Midwesterners like myself, like the people I grew up with, the people I love, we contain multitudes. We're just less likely to share that early. You've got to work it out of us. You've got to earn it. You especially, gotta, especially you Minnesotans. Yeah, you really have to earn our vulnerability. Like, this is not something we're going to lead with. We're not going to lead with our vulnerability, and we're not going to lead with our, um, our props either. We don't like to toot our own horn. Like generally, I've been married to my, I've been with my wife for what, 15 years. I'm still, I, I'm still trying to earn her vulnerability huh, as I a Scandinavian you. Minnesotan. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, it's people, they, uh, they hold a lot internally. I know. I know. That's why I love writing about them. I love writing about Midwesterners who get put in situations where they have to reveal or reckon with their vulnerability. Yeah. Why do, why am I such a. I feel like I'm more of an open book. Maybe it's like, <laughs> I do. Though. Maybe that's why you had to get out. I had to get out. Like I couldn't survive here. I had to yeah. find a garage and some microphones and just start vomiting into the world. But yeah, um, I think it's like maybe, a, I, I don't know. I come from a voluble family. I was, sort of. I was worried for a really long time that I was too earnest for California and especially Los Angeles. I, I thought I'm just too sincere. I think in some ways, <laughs> I think in some ways, uh, I've noticed that about myself, like in terms of like a, a cultural fit, mm -hmm. I often couch it in, in maybe I, I, I put it inside of a frame that it might not be the right fit, but there's something like very competitive and ambitious about a certain kind of person who comes to Los Angeles specifically to make it in the entertainment business. Right. Right. That I, have always felt like a sense of alienation around like, I, you know, I know exactly what you mean, but I don't know. I, that might just be my own stuff. I don't want to put too much on that. I, I don't know. I go back and forth. Sometimes I feel like there's a credence to it and it's like, wow, you know, I feel like ambition and competition 
can be okay, but it depends what you're ambitious for. Yes. And what you're competing for. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> and how, you know, like how it, like how it's, uh, countenanced. Right. And I think fame and big money as pursuits, uh, can engender a lot of internal toxicity that then finds its way outward. It's toxic. It can be a toxic environment. Right. Do you feel that? Yeah. I mean, you worked in entertainment for a while. Yeah. So you, you've been around it, you know, and like, there's like, there's a weird hunger. Mm -hmm. And, uh, who was I talking to about people this? always have a hustle or an angle too. Yeah. Yeah. There's that. It, it isn't that people aren't sincere. I mean, often they are, but they're, um, their, their ambition is going to make their, uh, what's the word, their relationship with you, um, mutable sometimes, you know, you, you sometimes feel like, oh, I, I'm, I'm in this working relationship with this person because I'm of use to them for this period of time. And then they move on or right. you move on. Right. Yeah. And for a certain period of time, you might have a really intimate friendship with them, you know, like, well, I shared things with them. I don't share with my oldest friends. And then like three months later, you don't see them and then you never see them again. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's odd. I think you have to have your head on straight. Yeah. To navigate it. And I think you have to really, really love it. Well, one of the things that I was told early on, and this, it's a little bit of a cliche, but I found it to be true is you have to have two of three things to make in their time industry. You have to have, you know, family connections or some kind of nepotism. You have to be good at the job. And you have to be well-liked and easy to work with. You have to have two of those three things. You can't have just one. No wonder I didn't get there. <laughs> <laughs> you're hated. You have no family and you're not good at anything. <laughs> I, mean, I, I sold a TV show. I, you know, yeah. I, I can tick that box. But I mean, man, that, pro oh, yeah, yeah. that process was draining. I, yeah, I know. And I see I have so many friends who are pitching TV shows now or have pitched them recently. Often their first one. And it's just... It just seems exhausting. Well, and you talk about like the, yeah. you know, people like being disposable, essentially, you know, you're of use to somebody. Oh yeah. But there's a superficiality in extreme. Oh, certainly. To... And, and in that industry, you're nobody till somebody loves you. Right. Like and... it's so hard to get that first sale. And then once you, you've got it, or, or maybe it's, I've, I've had a lot of people also tell me the first sale, no, you basically get that show taken away from you. And you're, you're, you're powerless. Like you're maybe, you, you maybe get a consulting producer credit or something or, you know, co-exec, you know, or something. You're like, you're, you're, you know, that most of the time that's not going to be, you know, your breakout. It's going to be your second show. Right. And now that you've got some leverage, now that you've pried open the door with a halfway decent idea that someone stole from you, right. now you can move on and, and, and really put your name on something. That's about right. Yeah. I mean, that's about right. It was just, and it was like, there's all this like weird superficial love when you're taking all these like endless meetings. Mm -hmm. You got a meeting, you got to do this meeting. And people are like, I love you. I love yeah. your voice. <laughs> they send you emails in all caps, which is like the joke I always make, but it's rooted in truth. Yeah. I yeah. can't tell you how many, like, I love all caps, your voice. And then you just never hear it from him again. You're just yeah. like, what the fuck was that? It just loves your voice. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't love me. <laughs> just my voice. Story of my life. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's got your podcast. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Um, so anyway, back to you and, um, moving from the success of kitchens where you <laughs> sold in how many markets? What are you uh, laughing at? I think 12 or 13. 
Why, why, why did you just laugh? Oh, I was just thinking, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, you said like, let's get back to you. And it reminded me of a, of a song I wrote with my friend Dan Safark in college called, but enough about you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just but hadn't it, thought enough. That's been, yeah. That has, that's like a feature of every single episode of yeah. the other oh, people. But enough about you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let me, let me try to wedge some of my own personal neuroses into this conversation. Oh, no, I, I, I really appreciate that part. Uh, uh but anyway, um, what was your question again? It yeah, was it was about moving from successive kitchens. Um, oh, yeah. not, not only did it do well in the North American market, did it sell overseas? Okay. Okay. Yeah, my, my British publisher didn't want Lager Queen, partially okay. because they didn't think kitchens sold enough in the UK, and they thought Lager Queen was even more specifically regional. Right. I mean, maybe if Lager Queen is a hit or enough of a hit that uh, they think, oh, boy, UK readers want to read it. They'll think about it. You know, certain markets like the French didn't pick it up until pretty late. Until I think it was out in paperback before the French were like, all right, yeah, we're interested. We'll do a French edition. Then it got nominated for an award this year. In France? Edition. Yeah. No yeah. shit? Yeah, some kind of reader's award. Yeah, and I was like, wow, okay. You know, so um, I don't completely understand the alchemy of that but no, lager queen hasn't sold as as much overseas yet that's one thing kitchens had that also propelled that momentum was um a lot of overseas interest early whereas this book has been the second book lager queen has been slower to develop overseas the germans they they, they bought it but they, did. Yeah, they went right for it what about scandinavian, but, but what about I, the scandinavian I, market same german pub, german language publisher as before um and uh, they're actually out of um uh, Switzerland. They're not out of Germany, but German language. And they're wonderful. I love them. I'm really glad that they uh, uh, picked up my second book. But yeah, no, it's been pretty sparse other than that. So, you know, I don't know. We'll see what happens. Yeah, It's all a blessing. You know, this is a, a fun thing to, fun thing to think about, a fun problem to have. Sure. Yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, with the success of Kitchens and having some precedent, you and, and having gone through the tidal wave experience yeah, yeah. with Kitchens, when you sell... Your second book, or was it a two-book deal? No, that? no. I, I sold the second book discreetly, which was to my advantage. Yeah. Um, I sold it based on, I think, two chapters I'd written by that point, only one of which ended up making the final book and only a part of that chapter. I wish I knew the page the pages off the top of my head, but it's deep in the book. I always start in the middle uh, mm. anyway, so... Uh, but yeah, it was, I sold out on a partial and I sold it for more than kitchens because at the time I think they thought, oh, kitchens is going to be really big. And I was able to leverage that to some extent. Sure. But did you, so when you say leverage, cause this is the question that I'm getting at is having gone through the tidal wave experience, were you able to say, and can you do that again? Like, no, no, I don't think it's something, it's not something I would ask for. I, I, I just, to me, it felt like such an honor and so, like, unheard of, you know? Like, I would never ask for it in a million years. I, I, I just feel, I just felt like that would be so rude and, like, I think I would and, be and, like, not, and not constant with Give me, give me the wave again. I want the wave again. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I, but they've, they've done great. They've done great with Lager Queen. Well, and I think they, having seen the success of Kitchens, and this book also has a, uh, what's the word? Like a food... What do you call it? Yeah, I guess so. Food, beverage, hospitality. Food and beverage. Yeah. It's got to say it's <laughs> front of house angle. Well, but it's like the point is that it's not a complete departure or like now right. Jay Ryan has the written, apples close to the tree. Yeah. So you're building 
It's getting better reviews than Kitchens got. Really? Yeah. Well, I'm really pleased by that because it's such a to me it's such a strange book. It's in such a specific world. I I looked around and I could only find one other recent novel anyway about the beer industry or set in the beer industry, and and it happened to be uh, a female brewer in Minnesota. It was a romance novel, but it was like so funny. It was like what was it called? I, I I forget off the top of my head, but it came out pretty recently, like within the last two years. Love and hops. Yeah, it was. Yeah, so, yeah, something like that. And it was. Uh, yeah, I I I I I certainly don't mean to um, uh, uh, impugn it. I I I I haven't read it, and I know how difficult it is to write a book and. And the research that this writer must have done in the brewing industry and had reasons for sitting in Minnesota, like, I'd like to read the book, quite honest with you. Uh, I, I, but that, that, that was it. I, I thought, oh, wow, there's only one other book. It, and it happens to be, at least in terms of its content, very uh, closely uh, <laughs> related in a sense. Um, but I didn't even know about that book until I think I was in my final draft of writing Locker Queen. At the time I, I started writing Locker Queen, it was so long ago, it was March of 2015. Uh, the beer industry had been expanding um, by leaps and bounds every year, and I was touring for kitchens and always ending up in these small Midwestern towns where often the best environment, the most people, the best food in some cases, was at the local brewery. And I thought, I want to write about this. This is cool. This is a cool, vital, new, young thing happening in the Midwest, and I want to write about this. But I also want to write about the crappy beer I drank growing up in Minnesota. Right. Oh, my God, we had so much mediocre lager. And the year I was born, I mean, there were fewer breweries in the entire United States than there is in um, Minnesota right now. Really? And, yeah, it's exploded. But but Minnesota had a lot of them, like out of like the 110 or 120 breweries that existed in the whole U.S., like, Minnesota had a nice chunk of them, and a lot of them, you know, like Schmidt, you know, uh, Grain Belt, you know, Shells, a lot of them just made this, made lager, made pretty much the same thing. Right. Hams, you know. Well, but I mean, uh, all those cold, like, because I, I yeah. grew up partially in Milwaukee. and Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, Milwaukee, Wisconsin had a town. ton of them. Absolutely. But yeah, they're freezing their ass off. They're inside. Yeah. Uh, but like, here's the thing. Living in California, you know what I hear all the time? What? I can't drink beer. Beer bloats me. Oh, I get bloated. Oh, funny. I think I've said that. I feel yeah. weird about that now because yeah. beer is a more like man of or like beverage of the people drink. Sure, but out here it's like wine. You know. And yeah. People, you know, well, bugs the shit out of me, kind of hearing people talk about wine. I got to be honest. <laughs> Especially younger people, like I like when some like you know, I don't know. It's fine. It, again, it's this is more of my own stuff. But when people are like, oh, the bouquet on this peanut, it's like, shut the fuck up. Like, you got that at Trader Joe's. Yeah. You don't know calm anything. Down. You don't know anything you're talking about. Yeah. Just drink your wine. <laughs> yeah, calm down. Um, but so, but beer, like, regionally is way more, I guess it's changing, though. Wine is popular in the Midwest, too. I feel like people. Oh, big time. Yeah. So it's not like it's completely exclusive. But I feel like when I go back to visit family in the Midwest and in Chicago and stuff, like, beer is king. Yeah, definitely. You know, people are not ordering rosé no. at the bars near Wrigley Field mo uh, most of the time. Yeah, 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 not terribly often. You know, yeah. so you... Yeah, there are more uh, women beer drinkers in the Midwest, I think, than out here, at least, that I experienced. And people have, I mean, sometimes people have a certain sense of identity around their alcoholic beverage of choice. Like, sure. I'm a beer drinker. Yeah. I don't drink that wine, or I drink wine because I'm too sophisticated for beer because it bloats me. Right. It's too carby. Right. And then it's like, no, I drink tequila because wine is grain-based. Right. 
All that drink vodka because it's low in calories. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, it just gets annoying. Yeah. I only drink wormwood. Isn't it yeah. amazing? Isn't, yeah, isn't it amazing how you can make anything annoying? Oh yeah, absolutely. You can just Especially ruin it. with food. Yeah, food yeah. and wine. So, it, but yeah. you seem to have. I think you have a very well-adjusted attitude about this stuff because you genuinely love it. Oh yeah, like you love wine, you love food, you love beer. Right? Yeah. You like it all. Oh, yeah. And you love to learn about it all. Oh, absolutely. That's my favorite part. Okay. So yeah. you're, I mean, this is, I think people need to know this. It's probably somewhat obvious based on the, the subject matter of your fiction, but like in real life, like you're out tasting wines. Do you collect wine? Yeah. Is yeah. It, I don't have a huge collection, but I, I have what I want. Do you, yeah. re, do you read about it? Uh, sure. Like you, you get like wine spectator and stuff like that? Uh, I don't get it, but I'll, I'll. I'll I'll read it, you know. I'll I'll pick it up, you know, when I'm traveling or something like that. Yeah, I'll read stuff like that, or I'll read articles online. Yeah, I mean, if I'm interested in a particular kind of wine, or I'm interested in um a particular topic within the wine world, like I'll I'll look it up and I'll read about it. I'll read about. I'm I'm always looking for a good value. I'll put it that way. I'm always looking for the best wine I can get under thirty dollars. Um. And, you know, I'm, because I don't want to, you know, fall into some sort of trap where, you know, I'm, I'm spending too much on wine because I've convinced myself that, you know, w- wine above a certain price point is quality wine. And everything else is direct because it's not true at all. No, you can, it, get, you can get great wine under $30. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm constantly on a hunt for it. I'm always looking to both, you know, challenge my palate, expose my, expose myself to new things and, and find good inexpensive wine. And it's, it's not that hard, but it, it takes more work. And what are some hot, what are some hot picks? Do you have any bottles off the top of your head you can recommend to people? Oh boy. Individual bottles. Like something people could actually get, you know, like at their, Oh boy. Um, there's a bottle of Monastrell put up by a Spanish vintner called Honoro Vera. You probably have seen other of their wines. It's, they have a black label with a person's face on it. These wines are under $10, but their, their Monastrell is particularly good. And here you can get it for six or $7, but I've seen it in other places for $19. Wow. Yeah. What's it called again? Uh, uh, H O N O R O V E R A. I don't know how to pronounce it exactly. Honoro Vera. Honoro Vera. Okay. But it was two words. Um, yeah, that Monastrel is great. I got a friend. Uh, you and what's know, that? What Monastrel's you, the you know varietal? Shank. He was buying it by the case for his parties. Was he? Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. We got into this wine. Okay. So, yeah. but, so, but uh, the Monastrel, that's the varietal? Yeah, it's the same as Morved, basically. It's a Southern Rhone origin varietal. It's used in Southern Rhone blends like. Chateau enough to pop is probably the most famous one. Oh, okay, and so like that—that's another example. You look at Chateau enough to pop. That is such a high, high price, and it has such a restaurant markup that's just completely insane. And, but you can look look at the regions around it. Like there's a region right across the river from it that makes basically the same terroir, you know, fraction of the price, like half the price. You know, so I'm always looking at looking at stuff like that. Right, yeah. and so it's a red one. Oh yeah, yeah, that's a red one. Yeah, Monastrellas. Yeah, it's it's red. It's yeah. There's a lot of the characteristics of a of a of a grape that's you know from the Southern Road. I feel like I'm being one of these annoying people you were just talking about. Like, <laughs> no, but like, it's a- I, I really love it. I, I got actually got turned on to them by 
uh, California vintners that were making Rowan style blends. You know, like like Beckman was an early early favorite of mine, and they they've gotten pretty expensive now, but you know they still make make good stuff even as their uh, uh, you know the climate in their wine growing region gets hotter. It's affecting their growing season. You know, I'm still really happy with their their wine, but they, you know, through getting exposed to those grapes, I asked I'll ask them a lot of questions every time I go up there, and I found things I really loved, and you know, uh, both Southern French and then now Spanish wine, which probably still represents the best value in red wine. Like Spanish wine is a great value, Spanish reds, and for Italian wine, I'd say Montepulciano. Like you could go to a restaurant. If they have a multiple Chiano, that's probably going to be the best bang for your buck. Yeah. Why? Um, you can get a good multiple Chiano for $10 or 80 And for other other grapes, you, you, you get what you pay for a little bit more. Or a multiple Chiano, for whatever reason, just kind of, it's, you know. It delivers. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Italian wine's harder for me. I it is harder. It's 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 different. You know, every every wine wine region and country has com- very different attitudes about wine and different histories of the those wines in those areas, but Well, see, but this is the thing is that for as much as I kind of eye roll sometimes uh about the the pretentiousness of it and I don't know, maybe it's specific to LA. I've just been to too many parties where people are standing around with their wine talking about wine yeah. in a way that feels phony to me. But you can the, get such good wine for not a lot of money, and you know, and and at the end of the day, you know, I've been to a few of these paper bag parties. People don't know what they're drinking. Most no, people, no. I mean, and, there's a and few a paper people. Ba- a paper bag parties where you basically blind taste, yes, and everybody decides what their favorite is. Yes. And a lot of the times, it's like the twelve dollar bottle, right? And the, the yeah. seventy five dollar bottle, everyone's like, ew, yeah, right. <laughs> no right. one knows, right? Yeah. Um, but the, the thing that I want to say in defense of wine. And this is how I feel about it when I'm at my least uh, contentious is that the growing of the grape, like the way that wine is made and the care that goes into it and the history, that connectivity to the land, the way in which it's tied to the seasons and the particular weather patterns of that year, all of that stuff to me is really fucking cool. Yeah. Like I actually have a sense of romance and total respect for that. And it's great to uh, drink a wine that's really good and to think about all that stuff. A lot of that is true for beer now, now too. Yeah. You know, with the craft breweries in the Midwest where, you know, you can literally drive an hour and see the grain that is being used in this beer. Right. Yeah. Does it have, but like the thing about wine and tell me if the same is true of beer, because I haven't experienced this as much, but the fact that wine goes... Like 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 peanut butter and jelly, like hmm. wine and food. Yeah, like they really are meant to, cheese in particular. Yeah, but, yeah, but, to, but to, a lot of food yeah. to go together. You know, mm-hmm. it's a mealtime beverage. Beer, um, especially when you get into craft beer, is it similar? Like, do you do pairings and stuff? Sure, like? you do. Yeah. yeah, that's happening. Oh yeah, there is a Michelin starred brew pub in Chicago called Band of Bohemia that develops beer for each course of meals they serve. Wow. They specifically brew beer to match the food they're serving. So, okay. So you can match just about anything. Oh, sure. Okay. Yeah. I mean, some beer, like, it's actually kind of tricky to match food with IPAs. I mean, there are some varieties of beer that are probably better alone. I mean, I mean, you can. I don't want to say you can't. I mean, but there are some varieties of beer that are more versatile than others or have flavor affinities that, you know, have, you know, they're more appealing or or more common. Hmm. Yeah. But I... 
Yeah, it, I I haven't experienced it a ton other than places like you know Band of Bohemia um, in public. I mean, it does happen, but more so in like people's homes if if someone cares enough to say like, oh, I'm making Indian food. What kind of beer goes with that? You can just Google search it and find some great advice on it. It's that's another thing that you know compared to the world we grew up in, Brad. Like like all of this information is so quickly and readily available. Like. The idea of being an expert or having expertise is almost irrelevant. You know, you can Google it. Yeah, right, right. You you can know what you need to know in an evening if you want to do a like a wine food pairing or a beer food pairing. Do you have a shorthand for varietals, uh, like an app or a chart that you carry in your wallet where it's like, oh, this was a good year for X because yeah, of the I got one in my car actually. Um, I don't remember a lot of it off the top of my head because I just look at it. If, I, when thinking, I'm, when, if I'm going to spend a lot of money on wine, for example, like if I'm going to buy a Sasakaya, let's say, you know, if I'm going to buy like a, like a Sasakaya Futures, <laughs> like this is really getting nerdy. Um, I just want to know what I'm getting into in terms of the vintage, you know. And there's, in, in my opinion, these days, there's not really going to be a bad bottle of wine like there used to be in the 70s or 60s, where, like, vintages would come out of France where just like, this is undrinkable. Like, we're not even going to, you know, like, this is atrocious. Right. Like, it doesn't really happen. Like, the 2014 was a bad year for Sasakaya, as Sasakaya goes. It just might mean you, you lay it down longer or, you know, or you or you develop an appreciation for how it's different from the 2016. You know, you think about it in, in a context as opposed to... Um, some kind of, uh, what's the word, macro-level um, assessment. Yeah, and and like I said, like viticulture is so sophisticated now. Like any operation with half a brain is not going to make a bad vintage. The, the, like when I talk about vintages being better than others, I mean, it's, and even that's somewhat subjective. You know, like, oh, like this part of Italy got more rain that year or it got hotter sooner or the nights weren't as cold. I mean, those things all affect the wine, definitely. But they know enough about how to manage this vineyard that they're not going to put out a shitty bottle. Right. Yeah. And it really, beauty, it really is in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. And do you have a really sophisticated palate? Do no. you have a good palate? I, I love to test myself. There's this fun little wine bar in Pasadena where... Like they put out like eight wines, and if you guess them all right, you know you get them free. And I've never guessed them all right. Uh, you know, like I, I have a feeling like, oh no, this is going to take a lot more work. I, I have to think about drinking wine in that way. Um, have you seen the documentary Somme? Of course, yeah. It's oh, it's that's great. crazy. It's, it's nuts. And another thing that's nuts about it is these people work so hard at this. They sacrifice their lives, relationships. The, uh, other, we're talking, other, and we're talking about the sommelier, basically yeah. master sommelier training. Yeah. Other opportunities. And at the end, like, you know, they study for this test, they fail it, they try again, they fail it, they try again, they get it. And after all this, all this work, you know, they get a job for, you know, like a multinational beverage company, you know, like, I mean, I thought, what, you know, um, or I don't know. I mean, one of the things that didn't occur to me going into watching that documentary was our, you know, some of the exams and also, I, I suppose to appoint Cicerone exams, which is for beer. Are they like the MFAs of beverage culture? They are. You know, because I would have thought, okay, you know, you're, you, you study for five years, whatever. You get your psalm, you know, you're, you're a master sommelier. You want to work at, you know, French Laundry you know, or something. You know, you right. want to work at Providence, you know. Those jobs are taken, <laughs> you know. Um, 
you, I, I don't know what sort of saturation rate there is, like vis-a-vis high-end restaurants, you know, and master sommeliers, you know, or if master sommeliers, you know, want, you know, uh, consider themselves individually as, as mobile as like MFA grads would like, you know, but, but, um, it's like trying to get the, you know, the cushy, like academic job after you get your MFA. Right. Right. It's hard to get. You get that MFA, and then it's like, whoa. And also, you're somebody, like, it, it's like being a writer. You've got, you've got your MFA. You're a writer for life. You know? You didn't, necessarily need a, you didn't necessarily need a piece of paper to tell you that, but you are. Like, like for the next 60 years, like, you're, you're going to write or try to write. Right. The same with, with, with being a sommelier. You're 25. You're a master som. Let's say you're 30 years old. You could do this until, you know, you're 80 or 90, right? And so you get this job. You get some sort of dream job. You know, you you fall in with, um, you know, um, you know, someone who is developing, um, you know, healthy and interesting, you know, cutting edge restaurant concepts and in a city that you want to live in. If you fall in with a person like that, they take you from place to place. Why would you, you know, like, like you've taken a job away from infinitely, you know, an infinite mass of other people who are going to come after you with these certifications, you know? Well, and it, you can also be the, like the coolest guy at the party. Yeah. You can sit there and just oh, you know, blind taste a lot of people. <laughs> right. You know, someone brings this bottle of wine to a party like, oh, I want you to meet, I want you to meet Tina. She's a master sommelier. And you'd be like, oh, I'm going to put my bottle back in the yeah. car. You know? <laughs> I'm just going to take this Chuck Shaw and, uh, yeah, I don't want her to see it. I don't want her to see it. <laughs> oh man. Well, it's, uh, it's fascinating. And I, I guess like, uh, a, a question that I have for you relative to the subject matter of your two novels is did you make a business level consideration about the fact that there is this huge market? Obviously, food is hugely popular. Food television, food media. Mm-hmm. Did you look at that and say, "Wow, like Anthony Bourdain has this huge market," and is it Ruth Reichel or um, I might be mispronouncing her name? But mm-hmm. right, there's food writers. Like mm-hmm. it's a big thing. And did you say, you know, there's an opportunity here to take uh, that market and to write stories like literary fiction? within that world as a way of um, being able to reach a lot of readers. Was that was, any part of your brain? It was more the inverse of that. Like, I didn't see a lot of robust food fiction. I mean, there's some. Um, but I, you know, like a lot of writers, I just wrote the book I wanted to exist. Like, I, I, I'd read Anthony Bourdain. I'd read um, books set in the world of food and wine, uh, nonfiction books, memoirs, and... Um, and I thought, well, this is great. I'd love to write about this in in, in the realm of fiction. I, I felt really motivated to do that. I remember reading this this piece in the New Yorker on a pop up supper club chef here in L.A. I forget what year it was twenty thirteen twenty twelve. And I thought, this is great. This is exactly the kind of thing I want to learn more about and write fiction about. And it came out of that motivation. It didn't come out of like thinking like, oh, this is going to sell. Because like I said, I didn't think I was going to sell. <laughs> I just wanted to write about something I wanted to learn about. Right. And I did the same thing with beer. I created characters that didn't know anything about beer. That like, like one of them loves it. Another, of, another of them hates it. They both end up making beer, and they end up getting to that point in their lives through very different ways. And. What's fun about that is I get to have my characters be cosmonauts of inquiry. They can go in and they can ask the dumb questions and they can tell the reader, um, 
what I think is as much beer information as they they should handle within the realm of a narrative. I didn't want to write Moby Dick. I didn't want right, alternating right, chapters right. with like <laughs> lists of IPAs, <laughs> like you know, like how to pour a beer, you know, right, like instructional right. <laughs> interstitials. You know, uh, I, I'm, uh, that book might come to exist, and I bet I would love it. But I didn't want that. Uh, that to be the story of Lager Queen. I wanted Lager Queen to be the story of of women who find an identity in the beer industry and learn about it. And I wanted to talk the reader through the process of their experience learning about it. So, but you're also telling family stories. Yeah, you're yeah, that's, telling ul- that's human ultimately stories. the spine. Is that I want to write books that have a lot of humanity. Another thing that was. Um, that was on my mind when I sat down to write Kitchens and certainly when I wrote Lager Queen was I just wanted books. I wanted to read more books that had a little bit of optimism and that had a little bit more heart, you know, and even if it's kind of cheesy or sentimental or, or a lot of readers, you know, a lot of like sophisticated coastal readers might kind of turn up their nose at, you know, I certainly had, had, (laughs) had one editor at a prominent uh, coastal literary magazine roll their eyes during one of my readings. Um, But I, 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 I felt like I want to read like a more hopeful, like humane book in these times. And I was seeing so much like apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic literature. And that's great. I mean, like, obviously we know where that comes from. And we, we sometimes when, you know, um, we experience national trauma, you, you want to process it like that. And other times you just want to forget about it, think about something nice. <laughs> right. Let's just make and some it, beer. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of what I set out to do. I was like, I just want to, when I sit down after like experiencing the news cycle, I don't want to read about the news cycle. Always. Right. You know, I mean, sometimes, I mean, there's some great books, you know, out there right now set within our time and, you know, expand upon the, 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 the realms of the themes of our time. But I also wanted to write a book that, you know, could be an escape from that and not hopefully not in a, a totally breezy way. I mean, the book takes on a, a lot of themes as it relates to class and poverty. I mean, there, there are parts of the book that were really tough for me to write. And um, the, the, the characters certainly go through the ringer. Like, it's not, a, it's not a, a cushy book, but compared to a lot of contemporary literature, I think it's, it's optimistic. Like, I, I found myself describing it to someone yesterday as, as utopian. I felt like you know, he asked me, why did you write a book about like women in brewing? And I said, well, I want it to exist. I want more women in brewing. Like I went to all these breweries. I didn't meet a lot of women. I met some, but mostly men. And I thought that's really boring. I don't want to tell that story. I, and so there's a lot of reasons I, 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 I like to write about women, but I was going to say, cause that's another thing. Like yeah. women, women re- read more books than men. Yeah, that's true. They're a bigger audience. So I'm like, I'm just trying to deconstruct like the success of, of your fiction in terms of finding readers has a lot going for it. And it seems to be just uh, like really mostly like a happy coincidence like that. Well, I write are... for my mom. I mean, that's my reader. When I, when I think about, do I have a reader? It's my mom and she'll never read one of my books. She's been dead for almost 15 years, but I like, I, I initially started writing and I still write to, to kind of evoke her and keep her present in my life and to write her into my characters to kind of, communicate with her sure yeah yeah and connect with her and to keep her you know in my heart and so as it turned out the most of the readers for kitchens a lot of them i'd say the majority were my mom's demographic you know um and i thought this is kind of amazing because i set out to kind of evoke and resuscitate like memories and a connection with my mom 
And then basically my mom comes to my readings. Right. Like that's who comes to my readings. Right. It's like, that's, that's who Red Kitchens, you know, was, was like my mom's friends, you know? And I just thought this is, this is amazing. It's a, this be- is it's like, a beautifully executed plan. Yeah. It's like a utopian Twilight Zone episode. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's like, oh my God, I want, I miss my mom so much. I really want her in my life. I, I feel just like it's like a hole in my heart that will never be fixed that she'll, that she never lived to see any of this. You know, she'd wanted to be a writer herself. She'd wanted to be a novelist. She died before she could do any of that. I feel like I'm honoring her legacy. Like I'm trying to do the work she didn't do. You know, and then I, I do this work, I bring it out in public and like, oh, wow, these people could be my mom's friends. I could go to a library reading or a bookstore in Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa, and I'm like, oh my God, I'm among family. Like it's... That's awesome. It's wild. That's crazy. But that's that's how these, these impulses and um, disciplines merge to create this this particular realm of... Um, but it's it's like... It's a, what strikes me is that it's a very pure motivation and it's also a very strong one. Like it comes from a very deep and, um, powerful emotional place. Well, it's certainly not provisional. Like I, I don't feel like I'm into, you know, like Chris Cooper's character and adaptation, you know, like fuck fish or whatever, you know, I, I didn't move. I don't, I don't feel like I'm moving from topic to topic because I'm th- through with a certain topic or I have obsessions and I need to slake it. it it's more like. Oh, what are other realms of access to understanding my mom and her family and her place in my family and her place in my life and keeping her alive? What are other inroads to that? And it's so funny talking about food and drink in relationship with my mom because she was a real, um, what's the word? Uh, voluptuary. <laughs> what does that mean? Oh, she really enjoyed eating and drinking. Yeah. Yeah. She like, n- not a gourmet exactly. Like she wasn't, she didn't have picky tastes. Um, I mean, she enjoyed fine dining, but she just enjoyed all dining. Yeah. She loved it all. Yeah. Yeah. Eating, drinking, beer, wine, margaritas, cocktails. Everything. Everything. Fried food, vegetarian food, pizza, you name it. Like she was into it. Yeah. That's yeah. great, though. I like people like that. I, sometimes I wish I was more like that. I know. I it's know. like easygoing. Yeah. Loves life. Yeah. And I'm sitting there going, well, wait a minute. Yeah. You know, how many sugars are in this? And exactly. All that fucking bullshit. Exactly. I'm yeah. too susceptible. I need to get less neurotic. Yeah. Yeah. But, but then again, I also feel like, because I, I grew up in that milieu. Like, you know, I remember having so many dinners where it was like a hot dog cut up and a bowl of macaroni and cheese. Oh, sure. You know, whatever it was. Oh, sure. It. Yeah. And yeah. like Kool-Aid and, you know, all the things that you grew up in the Midwest eating. Yeah. And there is something to be said about like being more mindful of like what we're putting in our bodies. Cause like there are health repercussions. Like you can't eat yourself into yeah. bad health. We were not mindful about what we put in our bodies growing up in Minnesota. No, it was like drinking Mountain Dew, like six Mountain Dews oh, yeah. in a day. Yeah. Like it was water. I would come home from school. I would eat an entire uh, frozen pizza. Yeah, tombstone. And, and then, yes. And then I would have dinner with my family a few hours later. <laughs> right, right. Which was often, like, not that far away from the frozen pizza. It would like be like spaghetti and meatballs. Yeah. Be like chicken stir fry. You know, just really basic staple kind of stuff. Yep. Pork chops. Yep. Uh, we used to eat this fish, Orange Roughy. It's yeah, been overfished. It's, like, it's like pretty much gone now. Like you'll never see it. Like it was just overfished. But we had a lot of Orange Roughy. So did we. Yeah. That's so funny. I remember. Like, and like my parents presented it as if it were like some sort of like unique delicacy, like with the Orange Roughy. We yeah. The orange roughy. Oh yeah. Yeah. That was our Friday fish. Often was Orange Roughy. Yeah, the Friday fish. All that stuff. And like I have yeah. such fond memories of it. And 
I go back up there because um, my wife is from Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I notice, and again, this is tied to my like food neuroses or like my over overly mindful approach maybe to food, is that they're almost in the Midwest. And this is the same in Indiana, you know, in Illinois, like any place really in the Midwest. It almost seems like there is a cultural ingrained aversion to healthy food. Hmm. Like not across the board, but like I sense more of it. It's like, ah, fuck that. Like we're just going to eat beer battered wings and fries and that's the good shit. Mm-hmm. And like, who cares about like artichokes or I don't know. Like they're like, it almost feels, I, I sometimes like say this, I'm like, it almost feels like people are like angry at healthy food. Hmm. Like there's, but it's a quiet hmm. anger. Sure. Is that any, am I imagining things? No, I don't think so. Yeah. I think it's in the Midwest. It's easy to find people who cast aspersions on healthy food for one reason or another. It's like, or, pre- it's like pretentious or they to view eat it as healthy. Work. It's like pretentious to eat healthy. It's that, like, Oh, you eat that salad. That even if it's cheaper, like even if like, Hey, I'll, I'll, I'll take you to the produce section. Like, look how affordable this is. This isn't more expensive. You know, orange, uh, ru- orange roughy is twice as expensive. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's just that it's, it feels like work. I think. Is that what you it know? is? Okay. It, like it doesn't have the pleasure of unhealthy food. Right. And if something doesn't have pleasure, then it must be work. And it also has less <laughs> cultural, like it's less uh, of a, uh, it's less tied to cultural identity. Like, which, which is a shame because so many of the people I grew up in the Midwest are descended from farmers who grow these vegetables and, you know, sustain their families on them. And it's funny as you, as you get older, you know, you look at that and you feel more, you know, as you just said, more divorced from that, that past and that connection with the land. And also the, the quality of vegetable you get when you're connected to the land. I mean, boy, the grocery stores in Minnesota in the 1980s were pretty dire. Like they wouldn't turn anyone on to tomatoes, you know, like let alone, like, I don't know if I saw an avocado until I you know, either went to the cities or moved to California. I can't remember, but, but like tomatoes, bananas, it's like even apples, like are quite often like the blandest version of those fruits. And, and now thankfully, you know, there's enough of an interest in eating local that you can get a tomato that tastes great in Minnesota pretty easily. And people care about it. Like more people care about it. Like day to day people care about not just foodies, not just chefs, but and that's one of the things I've really liked about the proliferation of food-related books and programming is that it's convinced a lot of people that they're they know something about food and they can be chefs, and if that leads them towards better, healthier local ingredients, I'm all for it. Well, and also just exposure to—I mean, this is what Bourdain did such a great job of—is just exposure. Yeah. Like, oh, wow. Like, there's this cultural tradition and this kind of food. Yeah. And w- we should try this. Wouldn't this yes. be delicious? Yes. And maybe we'll drive out of our neighborhood and go to this, like, funky mm-hmm. Thai restaurant across town or whatever it is to give yeah. it a shot because we saw it on TV or we read about it in a magazine. My dad's one of the healthiest eaters I know. And he's really gotten into Vietnamese food. There's this Vietnamese restaurant, like, in St. Cloud that he always goes to. And it's the same kind of thing. Like, if you would have told me 20 years ago that this would be the case, I would have... You could have knocked me down with a feather. It's changed a ton. <laughs> yeah. It's changed a ton. It's changed a ton. And for the better. And I think it's great that people are thinking more about what they eat. 
Yeah. My um, dad used to, matter-of-factly, come home, like on days he had to cook, with bags of Taco Bell and give us all a seven-layer burrito. <laughs> and now I don't think he... he I, now I'm not even sure if he knows where the Taco Bell is in St. Cloud. Yeah. You know, like, it, it it's, hasn't been a part of his life in a while, and it's it's so cool to see that evolution. When's the last time you ate fast food? Yesterday. Okay. Yeah. After I came home from interview, I decided to try the Beyond Tacos at Del Taco. Uh-huh. Because a friend of mine just went there two days ago and said, oh, yeah, they have Beyond Meat at Del Taco. And I was like, what? Oh, wait, do they? Yeah. I didn't know that. That's so why I said, I'll try that. How was it? That's well, fine. Okay. It's got to be better than whatever they're... Putting in the real ones? Yeah. Yeah, it's got to be. <laughs> Beyond... <laughs> I know it's beet-based, you know, and I like beets, too. So, I mean, I, it's not it's not soy-based, too, which I like. It's vegetable-based uh, Beyond Meat. So, um, you know, it was fine. Didn't they just have a big public offering, Beyond Meat? I think that company just went public. Oh, to, really? And, like, wow. it blew up. Yeah. So, and so, yeah, yeah, just yesterday I had to try the Beyond Meat at Del Taco. Well, what a, what a, for, what a, I'm glad I asked that question. <laughs> it had been a while. Yeah, I often don't. I don't even perceive it most of the time. You know, I'm on my way somewhere else. But I was like, but there are also points, you know, LA kind of closes early. I was out with my brother the last time he was in town. It was a Wednesday. Uh, we were coming back from Venice Beach and there were like no restaurants open. He was like, where do you, what do you eat at two in the morning? Right. And like, well, let's go to Del Taco. And that was the last time I'd been there was the same Del Taco and just got whatever, you know, just because you're not tired, you know, you're a little tipsy. You're just trying to, um, um, you know, keep the evening going, too, with your brother, you know. And um, and so, you know, get an Uber and schlep over to Del Taco. Oh, you so know? you didn't drive? No. How, how responsible of you? Oh, thanks. Ubering to Del Taco yeah. at 2 in the morning. Yeah. Yeah, no, there are people out. Yeah. Uh, yeah, LA needs yeah. to get its act together a little bit on yeah. the late night. I mean, like, yeah. I, listen, at my age or whatever, I'm very rarely out past like 11. But, uh, you know, there is a part of me that's like, we should at least have some options for people who like to blow it out and yeah. be out late. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's you know, Chicago, New York, we're much better for it. And, yeah, I don't think that, I, I, I don't understand the reasons behind it. You know, I think it's because well, people, people have to drive. Yeah. yeah, it's a driving city. That's the problem. They don't want people out of me, but I, you know, I yeah, feel no, like... And it makes perfect sense. On an average Friday or Saturday night, I often have wondered, like, what percentage of the cars on the road are over the legal limit at this point? I know. That's what scares me. It's uh, it's scary. You yeah. Know? And I feel like it's uh, probably a Especially decent... on holidays. You know, I hate driving on a drinking holiday like St. Patrick's Day or New Year's, you know, New Year's Eve or something like that. I feel like... My God, I'm taking my life in my hands going out here in LA. Right. I just want to stay home. How long have you been here? Uh, 20 years. Okay. Well, so 21 years. 21 years, July 4th. So you moved here in what? 98. 98. Okay. July I was 4th, here. 98. I was here 2000, 2001. Yeah. So right around so we've the seen time. a lot of changes. We have seen a lot of changes. Yeah. The homeless problem has gotten, I think, out of hand. Yeah. It's pretty bad here. It's real. I mean, well, the affordable housing problem is really bad here too. And that's part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'd like to see more more mixed zoning. I mean, the neighborhood I live in, Los Feliz, is a great example of how it can work so well. I mean, I live in an apartment building uh, on the same street with single-family homes and other apartment buildings, and I love it. Um, I know Minneapolis just instituted it, first major city, to kind of do away with single, you know, family zoning. Well, that's the problem. There was a great op-ed in, in the New York Times about this where it was like, you know, liberals especially in coastal cities where there's huge population centers and lots of homelessness and big products, San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, whatever, Chicago, I guess too would be one, but 
you know, they have uh, a lot of, um, you know, tendency to talk about, like talk the right things or talk the right ways about how we need to improve homelessness and we need to mm-hmm. get people off the streets and income inequality and all yeah. the, you know, all those issues. But then when it comes, like when push comes to shove and it's like, and by the way, we're going to rezone your neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And instead of just single family homes, there's going to be some multi, like there's going to be some quads and some apartment buildings. And yeah. all of a sudden people go, well, well not in my neighborhood. Right. Exactly. And then they're suddenly like, you know, storming city council meetings and, yeah. um, you know, donating, to politicians and, and lobbying to prevent these things. So, yeah. you know, it becomes a little bit hypocritical. And at some point you're going to, in Los Angeles, just as an example, you're going to have to go up. Yeah. Like sort of in, yeah. the, in the movie, her, there's a lot more high rises, yes. Yeah, which That's I think funny. is That's true. a pretty yeah. astute future. I mean, cause like there's no more real estate to, to build no. outward in, you know, so no. you're going to have to build straight up, which means downtown is going to become, I think a lot more populated with, re- you know, residents as Big opposed time. to just businesses. And then you're going to have to rezone or people are just going to have to flee. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't you know. I don't know. It just seems like that so- something's got to happen. If, if, if you and your wife could both work from home, would you still live here? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I kind of love it, but I'm also like sort of hungry for like a slower pace and some nature. Mm-hmm. Um, I love living near mountains. I've lived near mountains since I was like 17, 18 years old. Wow. That's cool. I've always had a mountain to climb. I know I've, this sounds strange, but like I've always had like within striking distance of my home, a mountain to climb. And I forget. Like, where'd you go to college? Boulder. Oh, Wow. So like yeah. I've been doing that multiple days a week my entire adult life, and I feel like wow. I would freak out if I didn't have a mountain. <laughs> yeah, how many cities or places in the world or in the country can you live in where you have like easy access to a mountain? Not a, not not a lot. And you, I also think there would be more, but there aren't, aren't really. No, many. even Denver is you know it's often the in the it's in a bowl, yeah, yeah, on the plains on the yeah. Platte River or whatever. Yeah. But mm-hmm. um, so you know Santa Barbara. Um, I'd go through sure. this in my head or you move to like Ojai or something. Cause I love the good weather too. Yeah. I don't need the winter. I did the winter. Yeah. yeah. I'm fine That's without right. winter. I don't That's need right. winter is a choice. But yeah. Winter is a choice. Yeah. Fall. I love <laughs> fall. I do miss. Yeah. I miss, I miss the changing of the leaves in the Midwest. Like that season is awesome. Like October in the Midwest is glorious. Yeah. Minnesota and Illinois, two places I've lived, they just own fall. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. But I, you know, so you, in life you have to make sacrifices. Like, I'll take 75 and sunny in February and, mm-hmm. and have to like just look at the pretty fall leaves on Instagram or whatever, you know? Yeah. yeah. I like to visit in the fall. It's a good, that's when I make a point of trying to be in the Midwest and luckily I will be uh, for Lager queen. I'll be touring until the first week of November. So I'll be in from the mid- now until the first week of November. Yeah. Damn. Are they in like, so is your publisher sending you out? Yeah. Uh, they're sending me out for part of it. Then the rest is self-finance. The rest is stuff I organized with their help. Uh, with their, you know, their, their logistical help and support, but I'm paying on that leg starting in like mid, late August, I'm paying for my own flights and hotels and stuff. How many events do you have? Like Uh, how many? 41, I think right now this year. All over and all in the United States? All in the U.S. this time. Yeah. I don't have any overseas yet. And so you go to bookstores mostly or mostly uh, some libraries. Libraries are great too, because you can, um, connect with readers and communities that don't have bookstores and also quite often libraries pay and they'll pay you enough that it'll offset the price of the flight or the rental car or the hotels are all. And also like I've had libraries in the past also uh, provide the hotel room, like pay for the hotel. Oh wow. You know, they'll put me up 
you know, and yeah, I mean, libraries have budgets for these things. And I didn't know about that. I didn't, you know, when I finished a, a book, a uh, book tour, when I was, you know, still working in kitchens, I thought, oh, I'm going to go to a bunch of places. I'm going to go to Skylight. I'm going to go to Powell's, you know, I'm going to go to Tattered Cover, you know, and no, it's, it's like, yeah, sure. I did a little bit of that, but I also really, really have enjoyed the libraries because they publicize well, they know their communities, they have book clubs that meet at the library, they marshal them, like they do such a great job of of community understanding and outreach. There really are such understated public resources, like, and, and like I said, they've got a budget for these things. I mean, you could, I've had some libraries, like the library I went to in Fishers, Indiana, like paid me I forget how much, but it was in the thousands of dollars to go there, you know? No and it's kidding. Like, yeah. You know, so, some of them it's hundreds, you know, some of it's like 300, 500 here. Then other times it's like five grand, three grand, you know, it's like these things start to snowball and like, oh yeah, now I've just paid for my book tour. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. And you just have to reach out to them and let, and let them know, like, the, you know, they exist and you're willing to go. Yeah. Because often these libraries, like they're not in places that you, you've been they're in suburbs. They're they're in small towns in the prairie. They're in mid-sized cities that don't have that sexy bookstore, you know. But they have readers. They have readers that are going to love your book if they know about it. Right. Yeah. Well, and I feel like in the Midwest, like Midwestern libraries, especially for kitchens, but also oh, for yeah. Lager Queen. Also, with this book tour, I'm, um, one of the fun things that technology has able, enabled us to do easier is offsite book sales. So a lot of the bookstores I'm visiting. I'm not going to be in the bookstore. I'm going to be at a brewery. I was going to say, you, you're going to do, because it makes sense to do like food and beverage yeah. related events. Yeah. And I think the bookstore loves it too. It's a different look. You know, they have a reason for the venue change. This isn't, you know, it's inspired by the content. And and, and the people who are attending have more fun. Let's be yeah, honest. I think so. I mean, nothing against bookstores. Yeah. But how can you be like going to a brewery and having like a good beer while yeah. you, you know, and then That'll afterwards, so much fun. afterwards you get to hang out and talk and eat and drink and yeah, that's great. Everybody yeah. has a good time. Yeah, that'll and be a you lot of fun. and you sell books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they'll just have to schlep over the boxes and bring a square reader and you know sit down at a table and get people drunk and take their money. It seems. The... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'm very lucky that you know to live in a time where there's uh, enough breweries and bookstores for this kind of thing to happen and for the technology to, to supply that relationship and make it robust. I feel very fortunate to, you know, be a touring author at this moment in time, writing about these things. So what about you have a new book that you just sold? Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about that, and then i got to let you go. But uh, uh-huh. you've got a, a third novel that you've sold to Pamela Dorman, so yes. you're staying with the same publisher. Yes, I'm very happy about that. And it was partial as well? You yeah, like, yeah, it was 150 pages this time about that. Well, like 120. I'm at 150 now. I've written 30 pages since then. And, and like, you know, without getting too deep into the weeds, like the negotiation details or whatever, like you have a third book, you're going back to your publisher, you're, you've had some success, so you probably have options, mm-hmm. but you decided to stick with Pamela Dorman. Oh, very much. Yeah. Can you talk about like the business decision-making process around that? Like this sense of loyalty, like loyalty is one thing, but you also have to look out for your best interest as a business person or, a you know to some degree, like how do you weigh those things? I'm going to go back to what we talked about earlier. Follow the enthusiasm. I know it's here. I know it's here at Viking and with Pamela Dorman. Like these people have, have um, supported my first two books with um, 
I don't know, such unexpected alacrity. You know, I know, like, 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 and we know each other. And I do them a solid by doing so much touring. You know, I feel like we each give each other something. Like, we have a relationship. And and I, I, they know I will do my best to promote my books. And I know they will do, you know, uh, an, an excellent job of promoting my books, both within their company and through their sales reps to bookstores and libraries. And I feel like, I know this. This is like, this ecosystem is such a blessing. I mean, I'm not saying I couldn't experience this at a different publisher or with a different editor, but why would I want to find out? You know, I feel like, I don't know. I mean, that that's where I'm at right now. I, even when my agent mentioned that, oh, you could probably get more for this book at a different place, you know, I thought, well, what is that going to cost me? You know, I can't put a price tag on what Vikings done, you know, and things like tidal wave, you know, I can't put a price tag on that. I feel like, you know, it's probably really ill-advised to me to be saying this in a national forum where anyone can access in terms of like my future leverage and negotiations. But <laughs> I, I, I re really love these people and I feel a lot of uh, faith and support from their, from them. And as long as that is the case, as long as I feel like, Oh wow, they're, they're, you know, they're behind me. They want to develop me as a writer. I'm like, what, why would I, why would I go elsewhere? One of the things I, I heard from my editor when I was working on the third book, you know, when I showed her the pages was, she was like, well, I see you're, you know, writing another book set in the Midwest set, like it's set at a restaurant, set at a supper club. And she was like, we just want to make sure you're um, evolving as a writer. You know, like uh, people ask me sometimes, does your editor or does your publisher like force you to write about food and drink because because of your first book? And I'm like, no, actually, I think they kind of like me to write about something else. Or, right. or, or, or at the very least, they want me to uh, demonstrate an evolution. They want to feel like when are oh, you gonna, he's growing as a writer. When like, are you going to write the great coastal vegan novel? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. And it's not just subject matter either. That's that's facile. They want to see, you know, you know, my my my, my writing skill develop as well, you know, regardless of the realm in which it's um, uh, effectuated. I feel like that's a that's a great scenario to be in. Like, like, you know, they care what I'm writing about. Of course, they, you know, um, they um feel confident in my work about food and drink, but I think they also will not only be open to me writing about other things, but encouraging of it. Well, that's all you can ask for. Yeah. Yeah. I, so I feel pretty lucky to be in this situation and, uh, you know, you know, we'll see what happens. You know, it is, it is a fickle industry and there's been a lot of crazy stuff happening with Lager Queen this week. And I feel like, like what? Oh, I don't know. I, well, I just, I just was interviewed by, um, uh, all things considered yesterday. Oh, that's great. My, I just talked to my agent, Aaron Hosher on this show for her memoir. And she uh -huh. said, one of the few things that really does move copies is national NPR. Yeah. So that's good. Yeah. Yeah. I was so nervous. I sweated more nervous than you are right sweated now. Caverns. I'm afraid so Brad. by the way, I mean, you put, you put the heat on man. Jay, Jay Ryan is shirtless right now. He's slowly, Glistening. he's slowly shedding layers and he is <laughs> yeah. um, one pack abs. It's like a pony keg. Um, which is apropos considering your, your new novel. I know my doctor told me to cut out the beer. He, he was like, try to drink less beer. Just try. Yeah. You're as heavy as you've ever been. 
I was like, it's all the beer I've been drinking. <laughs> and, he was, and he was like, are you going to be able to cut down on the beer the rest of the year? And he, I'm like, no, I'm afraid not. No. I'm going to be touring breweries. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that, that that was the big one. I mean, but um, really nice New York Times review, uh, Oprah Magazine, you know, uh, like a like a three-quarter page feature in Entertainment Weekly that had an illustration of me, like all this nutty stuff. And and the the more starred reviews than kitchens, better reviews. Like like it's um, the people really seem to be responding to this book, and it's nerve wracking, you know. But at the same time, I feel like this may not happen again. It may not happen again like this, you know. Um, maybe part of it is like the fact that like growing up like middle class and for a while, you know, lower middle class and in the Midwest, and you feel like survival is provisional you feel like oh i got a paycheck now but we don't know about next week you don't know like you could get fired at any or laid off at any point that's the truth though that's the family i grew up in my dad would get laid off from time to time and we're just be like well that's it i guess like we're having fewer christmas presents or we're not going to eat out or we're going to cut this thing or we're going to sell this car like all this stuff would happen and i've never you, you how how can anyone ever really forget that and so i i view any success i have is completely provisional and very fleeting. temporary and fleeting right you know it's like this happened but i always have to keep hustling i always have to keep working i can't ever let my foot off the gas because like everything could change about this at any at, at any minute well i think you're doing well and i hope you have a great time on this tour enjoy the moment you know you enjoy, oh, i'll I'm do my sure, best thank i'm sure you. i think you're i think you're doing that too so oh thanks uh, i'm really thrilled for you congratulations again and uh i wish you all the best Thank you so much, Brad. All right, everybody. That's Jay Ryan Stradle. What a good talk, huh? Good guy. And a great writer. His new He's a good guy, but he's a great writer. He's a mediocre human being, but a fabulous pro stylist. He's actually best of both worlds. Uh, and the new book is called The Lager Queen of Minnesota. It is a novel. It is available from Pam Dorman Books. Go get it. You can find J. Ryan Stradle online at jryanstradle.com. You can find him on Twitter. His handle is at jryanstradle. The Lager Queen of Minnesota, out there now. Go get it. Go get it. If you want to support the show, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you want to write to me, letters at otherppl.com. Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total for the theme song music. As always, thank you to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music. Don't forget about the Other People app. This show has its own app. It's free. It's a totally free app. It's the Other People with Brad Listy app. Go get that app wherever you get your apps. What else can I tell you? I'll say this. Leonardo DiCaprio is a fantastic actor. Say what you will. I think he's a really good actor. I gotta admit Okay, I don't know who's on next week. I'm still figuring it out. It's in flux. (laughs) 